Good morning, Wafe. How are you? Good. Good. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. How are you guys doing? It's it's getting cold here. I have to wear long sleeve stuff. We have a heat uh, wave coming through the Netherlands. It's been quite warm the past week or so. Yeah, well, I heard in, uh, in France last week it was um, like late 30s, 38, 39. I don't know how, how hot was it in the Netherlands? Yeah, in the southern France it was. In the Netherlands it was around 30, max 35 degrees, like yesterday. But as a result, now it's getting and it will be cooling down in the upcoming days. So next week we have got around 20, 25 degrees. So for the listeners who are familiar, you are Koroks in New Zealand, who's purchased a Seabay printer from Berry at Seabay. And today we're going to talk a little bit about your experience with the printer you purchased, what you've been printing, some things you may look to print in the future. Um, yeah. So far, how has your experience been with your printer? Uh, it's been uh, an exciting journey. Uh, it's been uh, a long time coming, I feel, uh, because uh, initially we started the conversation in 2018. And um, I tried, before talking to Barry, I tried to talk to him um, to explore what's on the market. And by far, SIBI uh, was the easiest one to communicate with and to work with. And um, this made me um, um, start to seriously thinking about partnership with them. And um, in 2018, I visited the facility and worked. And uh, we had uh, around four days together, talked about business plans and, um, and the technology and, and, and what we expect from each other as partners. And it was, uh, it's very insightful and it was the beginning of a, a very good relationship. And since then, um, I had to work on my end to see how we can get the system to be certified and tested in New Zealand. And uh, after that, we procured the, the robot that was due to arrive middle of May last year. But because of uh, lockdowns and COVID and travel restrictions, uh, there were some delays. Um, and uh, they were out of anyone's control as unforeseen, as you can imagine, what's ha happened everywhere in the world. And um, in, in, robot arrived in the October, and SIBI um, um, training team, including Barry, and uh, two of the most experienced guys he has, Kevin and, and Mark, uh, were kind enough to spend two weeks in quarantine in New Zealand. Uh, and then after that, uh, we spent two weeks together. They trained us on the system. We got really familiar with it. We were able to, to print uh, with it. And uh, uh, we did two public demonstrations and they were advertised and covered in the newspaper. And then slowly, slowly we've been building momentum since then. And we're starting to have uh, some decent projects on the pipeline. And uh, it's, it's been quite exciting. I want to ask about uh, your team and the training process, but before that, can you describe what it was like getting the machine certified and tested in New Zealand? And the, you cannot certify the machine by itself, but you certify the, the structural elements that you produce. And it's, uh, 
In New Zealand, for some reason, um, we have a very unique and awkward building standard uh, because of the seismic requirements. And, um, and it's, New Zealand's a little bit disjointed from the rest of the world when it comes to building standards. Like you have the Euro code, pretty much covers the whole of Europe. The UK is very similar to it. It's not, it's not far apart. The United States, you have the ATSM. Uh, and Canada and Mexico and most of America's effectively copy it or have a, their slightly version of it. But in New Zealand, for some reason, they decided to make their own standard. Like it's just completely different to everywhere else. So we had to actually dumb down the technology to mimic the building standard. And the technology can by far outperform the building standard. And this happened when we tested. We are at some tests, we are almost 10 times their, their fire strength which is ridiculously high. And in some instance, we, they couldn't even break the wall. So um, when we did the tests for the, for the extra load test or the vertical load test on the road, uh, on it, we broke the RAM that was testing the wall. Uh, so they said, okay, we're not gonna try to break the RAM again and uh, we will wait. <laughs> so, we, so the test stopped and uh, the wall section and can carry almost eight, eight SUVs, nose to tail, and, the, and it did not break. So it was, um, um, it was very promising, it was very exciting, and then, but we looked at it and said, okay, we can do a lot more with a lot less material if we, if we 3D print. And, uh, and unfortunately, the building standards are not keeping up with what we're trying to do. Maybe the United States being the first country that has the, the uh, have dual listing uh, or testing procedure for for 3D printing, and New Zealand were miles behind when it comes to that. I wouldn't say the United States is far more advanced. They just came out with SG80, which is a, a kind of overarching regulation stating that they support 3D printed buildings, but it's up to local municipalities to decide whether they want to permit it or not. And so it's still it's very fragmented, and it's not even at a state level; it's at a town level that the permitting department will have to determine whether or not they'll accept uh, these types of buildings. So your training initially, what was your team like? So uh, because, as you know, there isn't, um, there isn't an industry that feeds into 3D printing concrete. Uh, there isn't, there's somewhere that uh, these guys are work uh, in this in industry and then we can train them up to be there. It's just completely out of the box. And, so what I did is that um, I have a certified builder and he's, he's young and also a digger driver. So, so they, both of them can uh, help each other out. So one of them is very experienced with machinery, heavy machinery, the other guy knows the building standards. And both of them uh, didn't know anything about modeling softwares, they didn't know anything about robots, they didn't know anything about 3D printing when they started. And um, I gave them some training when they started about the modeling softwares that they use. And, um, and then when, uh, when the guys were here training them, uh, within 10 days, the guys that didn't know how, what robot looks like or how to even do basic movement from the robots, they were able to, to operate it and able to control the system. And we did um, um, a lot of uh, video conferencing in the beginning. And, and through the CBS library and we had videos uh, that help us train the guys and even before the we actually had one-on-one -on -one training with them in person we were able to print 
elements with the low, slow setting material to help us uh, get familiar with the system. And then after that, when they were out, we were uh, of quarantine. Feel sometimes I think that they are like out of prison. Felt like it <laughs> sometimes. Uh, we were able to um, to effectively pick up from where we left. Obviously, there's a, they have a lot of experience, so there's a lot of things that you you have to learn hands on. And Sibi's motto with uh, learning by doing is is perfect for that. It's just uh, we had to do it to get our hands dirty to learn it, and um, and I can tell you we got our hands dirty and we got really hot. <laughs> so in the beginning, it was easier for you to print with the slow setting material. And then after the training, now you're mostly printing with the fast setting material. Yeah, we're printing with, uh, with uh, we, we can print with, uh, we developed uh, a local mix in New Zealand based on the, uh, on the recipe that we have, have developed and produced in Germany. Uh, through Cold War, and um, we had a lot of technical support from Cold War and Civi to, to be able to get uh, locally, local ingredients to replicate the system that we have. Uh, and even in New Zealand, we had to think outside of the box because some of the sand sizes and, and statistic characteristics that you find in Europe were not available in New Zealand. So we had to effectively develop a whole new formula and the guys have been really supportive and it helped us a lot uh, because we're so, so far away from the rest of the world we're almost disconnected uh, works very well in, in um, pandemic times but it's not really good for logistics and uh, so uh, it was paramount for us that we we're able to work with local material as much as possible and to reduce the impact of, uh, of transport uh, and we, 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 we got it, and, and right now we're even testing with colored uh, oxides. So we, uh, we printed, we're printing with, uh, today we printed with black uh, mortar, so it um, comes out black, and this is um, with New Zealand mix, it's not, uh, not the mix made in Europe, and we couldn't have done that without city support. Very nice, so your initial team was the three of you, yourself, the building construction standards expert and the heavy equipment expert. Has your team grown? Yeah, they're, they're not experts. Uh, but they're, they're, the builder is 22 years old and the digger driver is 25 years old. Uh, <laughs> they're just, they're just young guys. They're enthusiastic to learn new things and they're getting exactly. specialists with a concrete printing. Exactly. So right now, as far as I know, um, uh, they're the only two guys in the Southern Hemisphere that actually got hands-on training, one-on-one -on -one training with, with, with Civi. Uh, and I know that there's other robots that have been sold um, to the bottom half of the planet, but I don't think they had uh, the, the luxury that we had uh, when we managed to get uh, the guys from, uh, from, from the Netherlands here. It worked quite well because uh, a week after that, we couldn't get them through quarantine because it was full. the quarantine facilities were fully booked. And, uh, and we just managed to just squeeze them in. It, and uh, it w the quarantine facilities in New Zealand are managed and by, by the New Zealand Army. So the first time we actually met when they arrived, we were dropping some, uh, some stuff for them. And there was one of the Army uh, lieutenants, I think he was standing there, and he, he quizzed us. What are we doing here? How do we know each other? What, why are you guys standing there together and stuff like that? But this is how seriously they take it. Um, 
here, and that's why we are able to move clearly, and not freely, really, but clearly within the museum space. So the guy responsible for allowing you into New Zealand, was he, had he heard of 3D printed construction or was he like? No, 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 that uh, was police men and, and, and some guys from the army uh, that guarded us. Um, we were explaining because there were only people from Australia traveling to New Zealand, meeting up their family back and forth. So they had the Dutchies, us uh, over there and we explained what we were doing and they're like, uh, you've really got the life. You're seeing nice countries like Qatar, Dubai, Paraguay. Now in New Zealand, you're uh, uh, able to travel. Um, although there is COVID, you're still doing these things. So, um, no, they're really amazed um, uh, of the lifestyle, as well as what we are doing. It's pretty unique. Um, still on a global scale, it's pretty unique to print concrete. Uh, Wafe is the first one in New Zealand who is uh, doing this. Uh, so it's like being a frontier. Um, uh, uh, there's still a lot of opportunities. Uh, which are capable of exploring so yeah yeah so it's it's very exciting and, and we're getting a lot of uh, uh, interest and we're working on some stuff that i don't think has been done anywhere else in the world but you never know who's who's doing stuff somewhere it's not advertised yet but in november we might have um, or before the end of the year we might have a world first uh, with 3d printing uh, uh, but I, again, I don't know. Uh, my, uh, we will have to put them, you know, in bold with lines on the most likely, the first, or most likely, <laughs> and the, sec the, the second or whatever it is. But but, uh, these are, um, because uh, we've seen some things uh, you're working on, uh, these things are good to, to gain credibility. Um, whether it is first or not the first, it gives credibility to the company who's doing it, for sure. And, and grow your business getting that credibility is relevant yeah i know and but it, it's um it is uh it's very interesting uh because it what we're working on it's not it's not a high risk element or anything it's just it's straightforward walls but how what are we doing with the walls if we're, what's exciting and then then the internally speaking then uh, the construction industry in new zealand is a little bit um uh, risk adverse, it's really, really um, stagnant, um, and um, mainly because they're driven really lo very low margins and very high uh, viability. So this doesn't give you room for innovation mm. and trying things. And um, a lot of the companies that I work that I'm working with, um, they are young uh, companies. By young, I mean the owners are are, are young. The older the company. Uh, or the older the architecture firm, the more conservative they are. Uh, and we found a lot more traction from small to mid-sized firms rather than the big ones. Even the big ones are interesting in knowing what we're doing, but they're not really keen to be the leading edge of technology. And a lot of them, innovation is more of a marketing punchline than actual a goal that they are trying to achieve. That makes a lot of sense because the older companies, I mean, if the CEO is in his 50s or 60s, he's looking on the horizon of retirement and this technology could take another five or 10 years to become super mainstream. So it's really uh, not in their prospect to dominate construction automation, whereas the younger guys have that opportunity for the future. That's one thing, but also if they are going to embrace new technology, they need to start reorganizing and educating all the current team members, which is 
pretty uh, uh, a big influence on an organization. Yeah, so one of the things that we're trying, we're trying to do is uh, try to work with the universities and have lectures and, and, and presentations with the, with the professors and architecture or, stru or structure engineering and maybe to make them aware about the technology and excite them about technology and get them understand about parametric design because even museums five years ago most of the graduates didn't, didn't, didn't know anything about parametric design they were barely doing modeling software predominantly using sketchup or or, or, um, or revit and and, um, and now we're telling them oh, there's a whole, whole different world out there called parametric design and they're just the older ones are freaking out. Then go on, really excited about it. And anyone from 30 and above is looking at a crap. Can you tell me more about your personal background? Like what job were you doing? <laughs> so, so my personal background is, um, I, I'm, my father had a, con a construction company when I was, yeah, when, when I was in high school and then and I wanted to be an engineer for some reason. I didn't know what type of engineer, I just wanted to be an engineer because I was really good at math, physics, and, and chemistry. So I was saying, I need to be an engineer. <laughs> so I went to engineering in Cairo University. And then after that, I realized I don't really like math that much. I had enough I had integration and calculus uh, just drove me nuts. So I said, okay, which is the department that take the least amount of math? And it was architecture. So architecture, they have one course of the statistics and that's it. So I said, yeah, that's me. So um, I, I graduated uh, with a degree in architectural engineering in, um, and um, I worked in construction in Egypt for a couple of years and then I got a job opportunity to move to Dubai in 2006 during the construction boom that was happening over there. Mm -hmm. Ended up there for seven years, worked on all sorts of projects from Fit out for 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 super yachts to, to work on the Formula One track in Abu Dhabi, and did the Ritz Carlton Hotel in DIFC, and then um, got a job opportunity to move to China. Uh, with the, my last employer, they asked me, uh, "We're going to close the Dubai branch uh, because the economy wasn't doing so well. Do you want to go to China?" So I said, "Yeah, why not?" So I moved to China in 2013, and they lived there for. Uh, two and a half years, did, um, did a couple of really big uh, uh, logistics centers over there, and then moved in uh, 2015 to Hamilton in New Zealand. Uh, it's a long way around, but uh, eventually we made it to New Zealand. The main reason why I ended up in New Zealand is my wife is from Hamilton. And uh, at that time, I was planning to move to Canada, and she told me I'm not going to move to Canada, it's too cold. Uh, so I ended up moving to New Zealand. So. And I worked here in a construction company, specialized in design and build projects, and mainly complex um, laboratories and factories. And then um, in 2018, you can call it a midlife crisis. You can call it um, being bored with the construction industry. You can say whatever you want. I lost all of my hair uh, over the last 20 years. And I said, I'm not going to continue doing this crap over and over again. The construction industry either need to change or I need to look for, an, for another industry. And um, I found um, a couple of videos about 3D printing in, on, online and um, it was really interesting. And the more I read in, about it and more research I did, the more interesting it 
it became to me and it became quite obvious that this is the future of construction industry because we cannot just <coughs> we cannot uh, keep on repeating the same answers the questions that we the, the the pain points and the questions that we have as an industry and expect that somehow it's going to fix itself and the only way for us to get out of this construction rut that we have is by implementing automation automation needs to be part of the everyday construction and we need to be more um, sustainable as an industry the amount of waste that we have in construction sites is ridiculous and the only way to be uh, efficient is to actually be more accurate and more precise in what we're doing and automation is the only way that allows us to do this because robots are a lot more precise than humans and that's why the automotive industry have embraced this for 30 or 40 years uh, the construction industry is just catching up with the automotive industry and, and manufacturing in general. So manufacturing should not, uh, or automation should not stop at the factory door, should not stop where the raw material is made. Because uh, again, if you look at the supply chain of the construction industry, most of it is automated until the factory door and then this word stops. This needs to flow over to the construction site. And whether you're doing precast panels on site um, or semi precast panels, we are doing print in place, whatever you're doing, it's way faster than doing it with physical labor. Whatever, whatever printing system you have, it's faster than doing it manually. So let's talk a little bit about the um, economic factors in New Zealand. How is the labor market there for construction? And I think it's quite similar to a lot of places around the world. We don't have enough people. And um, and this is one of the biggest challenges. And that seems to be the default answer is that we need to train more people and get them to the industry. And this, if this solution worked 30 or 40 years ago, we'll not be having this discussion now. But this seems to be the default answer everywhere in the world. And you end up with either migrant labor or you end up with a big surge of uh, uh, untrained, unqualified, or under or, or unexperienced workforce that actually causes a lot more damage than than benefit and and the, the solution is not just train people uh, or import people because in Dubai the majority of the workforce will migrant labor and right now you will see that Dubai and Saudi Arabia and the GCC overall are the ones that are investing the most in 3d printing because they know that this is not a sustainable model with migrant labor because Migrant labor coming in, regardless of where they are, they need food, they need shelter, they need medical service, and they're also not there for their family. So either they want to bring their family or continuously have, they have to travel back and forth. And um, it's quite obvious uh, that's not sustainable and COVID made it even worse because the closing the borders down, the migrant labor is either they're stuck in one end and they either cannot go to the family or they cannot go to the countries that they are going to work in. So it's quite obvious that uh, we need to, we need something else to do the heavy lifting rather than human resources. And robotics and, and 3D printing is that. What about the housing market in New Zealand? Um, is there a housing shortage? Have the prices been rising dramatically like in some other regions? It's, uh, it, um, it's borderline a joke. And what we have here, like uh, we, we don't have enough houses, again, it's a global issue. 
um, housing prices. Um, everyone expected during COVID and lockdown that the prices will go down by 10%. As a result, they went up by 30%. So uh, interest rates are lower um, and they're blocking effectively investors from, from buying property. And banks are putting a very high um, deposit uh, requirements for investors uh, to try to protect um, the first home buyers, the people that want to buy houses for the first time. And uh, uh, what's being put on the market is nowhere near the, um, uh, the requirement. And this is um, mirroring what is happening everywhere in the world. Uh, and this is also reaffirms that um, the construction methodologies that we're doing are not keeping up with the demand. No matter how big or small the scale of the economy is, you have the same issue in the United States, you have the same issue in Europe, you have the same issue in, in India, you have the same issue here, you have the same issue in Australia. No matter where you are, it is the same problem. Not enough people, not enough time, cost of construction keeps on going up, and um, we, doesn't, we don't seem to have an answer for it um, with the traditional way I've been doing it because we, this problem has been around since the 50s and the 60s and post-World War II when they had to rebuild Europe. It was the same problem, not enough people. And, um, and Europe ended up relying quite heavily on, on migrants from Turkey and, and Italy to rebuild it after the Second World War because there were not enough people. And it stayed like this. Are there states like this, in, you mean, in America? No, it's the, I mean state like that. The state that demand for, resor for, human, for human resources is not, is not able to fill the gap and the supply has been always short. Understood. So in America, they do a lot of like stick-built construction. Um, in Florida, they do a lot of cinder block or concrete. For bigger buildings, maybe they'll use steel. Um, what's the conventional construction method in New Zealand? The convention is um, uh, stick framing or timber framing, uh, uh, which is very similar to what we have in predominantly the United States and Canada. Uh, we don't use um, auto masonry blocks or cinder blocks because we like the, the scale force for plastering and rendering. Uh, and timber is a local material. New Zealand exports majority of its timber because we have a very green uh, country. So we produce pine and we export pine. Um, and we mill it. So most of the timber framing we have in New Zealand, or not most, all of the timber framing is, is pine, um, and treated against um, termite, and not termite, against moisture, and, um, and, and we don't have termites in New Zealand, it's too cold for termites, but in Australia they have termites issues. But in New Zealand, 95% of the houses or even more are timber framing. We have very small um, percentage of steel framing, um, um, again, it's mainly because what is the workforce used to? So they use the timber framing, and and that's what they that's what they use. And on the flip side of that, even though we are exporting timber, we have a timber shortage, um, and uh, and also we have um, we're relying quite heavily on treated timber uh, from overseas, and for specific bracing elements and uh, and cladding that we don't have, we don't produce in New Zealand. So we import a lot of cladding um, timber from Canada and the United States, and, and a lot of plywood from Australia and China. 
uh, and we're short on, on everything. Uh, right now, it's quite difficult to get timber, and timber prices went up by 20% since the beginning of this year. So you add to that shortage of labor, uh, you add to that the country with closed borders, so we cannot even get labor if we want to, and, uh, and you have a recipe for, for disaster, really. and this is what, uh, what's, we're, what we're going through. We, they, we have the highest consent, or the highest building permits for housing ever recorded since the 70s, I think, it's even, or even surpassed that. But we'll not build them because we don't have deep, enough people and we don't have enough, enough material. And New Zealand being a small economy, we rely a lot on imported raw material. And Europe waking up right now, getting out of lockdown and going to summer, there will be a massive demand because they have a massive backlog uh, of construction and will absorb a lot of the raw materials that's going around the world, which means that we'll be left out. Uh, because our uh, buying power is quite small compared to Europe or South Asia. So it will compound the problem. 3D printing on the flip side of that, it's completely parallel supply chain. So it's not affected to what's happening. So it helps us uh, elevate some of the pain point and the shortage and raw material that the market will have in New Zealand. And this makes it even more attractive to a lot of people because you have the product, you can print with it, you don't have to wait. For, for the local uh, manufacturing forces at a full capacity. Very nice. You mentioned a project in November that's going to be maybe a first or at least first for New Zealand, probably globally. Yeah. Can you go into any more details about what that project will be? Uh, unfortunately, I can't now. I don't think even Barry knows about it yet. So uh, uh, it's. Uh, it's a little bit uh, uh, keeping wraps on it, and um, and hopefully because we have annual uh, maintenance with uh, with the, with the guys from Civi, so maybe they will be involved in it if farming everything lines up, because it will be a very cool um, thing to do, and um, and it might be also a first for them unless they unless they have done it somewhere else. But as far as I know, it hasn't been done, and and it's uh, it's exciting, and um, the client is ready to go is just uh, we're finalizing the dimensions uh, to get the engineers involved and, uh, and build it. So just <laughs> to get, there's engineering involved in it if that helps, <laughs> gives you an hint. So what are the, your favorite prints you've accomplished so far with your CBA printer? Um, we have this kind of unique flax weave. So in New Zealand, they use flax um, as part of the Maori culture and and they make baskets. It's quite similar to what you'll have in South, South Asia with them, with palm leaves. So we printed a wall that mimics the Waikato River, a section of the Waikato River with flax leaves in front. And we did it the first time when, uh, when we're doing the training. Actually, we did it like within the first week of doing training. It started the public demonstrations that we did in Oakland. And after that, uh, now we pushed it even further. So we, we have more projection and it's everyone that looks at it, they're really uh, like, it stands out. Because you cannot do this with any other met construction method, um, unless you're willing to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in, mo in molds. But um, yeah, I don't think you can do it because even the wall is curved 
So it doesn't just have the pattern in front, it's curved from behind and with precast, it's very difficult to do curved walls with a with texture in front. Uh, I can send you a picture of it and, and we have a small time lapse of how we, how we did it. And then we're printing at around four and a half square meters an hour, which will be around maybe four and a half square meters a foot would, would be around over 40 foot an hour. And if I if I remember, it will be maybe close to forty eight foot an hour. Would you be able to use the share screen option to put it on this video chat? Yeah, I can. Uh, I, you need to enable me because it disabled participation by host. While I'm looking for it. Mm. I can't, uh, let me change the setting. Uh, now it's worked. Okay. Now it's working. I just need to find um, the, the picture and I'll show it to you. So what is the, uh, from your side, the support provided? I think the entire process can be divided between different stages. Uh, of course, in 2008, we talked about, uh, you contacted me when we were in Saudi Arabia um, in August, September um, 2018, and we scheduled the, the visit to get to know each other uh, in October 2018. Um, and the uh, match was pretty good. He's from a construction, uh, he's got a construction history, um, and, and as myself, you know, both have been in Dubai, so I knew where he was talking about. Um, based on that, you can really build up a relation. Um, first, we focused afterwards on the business case, and in parallel, indeed, it was necessary to get uh, a wall uh, section getting certified in order to get um, uh, the, finances, uh, the funding uh, arranged um, by the end of 2019. So um, what we always do is focusing on the business case um, and make sure that within the business case, you've got a design or something to also check besides the economic feasibility, the technical feasibility. I think within one year, we cope up with that. And then indeed, uh, we started manufacturing the printer into the beginning of 2020. As a result of COVID, we had some delays as well as with the training. Uh, the training would have been here, but yeah, I think in the end, um, 2020 was pretty stressful um, because we couldn't do what um, also for him, uh, for uh, what favorite was stressful because we didn't know what to expect. April, uh, March, April, May. Um, but I think in the end, in November, when we were there, seeing each other again, because it has been like two years uh, that we have not seen each other, um, everything is now falling in place. Uh, and that's indeed uh, hands on training. Uh, being there uh, physically supporting not only with the printing, but also meeting up with person, in this case, Matt and Matt, um, and his team members, uh, talking with several interns uh, that are working at uh, Polox, uh, supporting with the material, uh, doing that together. Uh, and now as well, Mark, who has been training you for the last two weeks, uh, he's got a bi-weekly meeting with um, Matt and Matt and with uh, Wafe to see what they're up to, to see what they need additional support. And for us, that's also uh, relevant because we get feedback by which we further develop the training uh, programs or our technology, the software, etc. 
um, because they're also using it. So they know best where we need to tweak. Uh, so that is actually providing us relevant feedback um, that they give as well as a lot of partners who have uh, preferred progress on, on, on the technology. Um, And Gareth, for some reason, is telling me um, sharing the screen is paused, and I have no idea why. I tried to press on resume sharing, and it will not let me. There we go. You should be able to now. Okay. Where did it go? No, that's wrong. Okay, let's try again. Okay, so this is, uh, I don't know if you can see the picture. This is when we did the, the public demonstration in Auckland, and you can see here the curve in the back of the wall. Uh, can you see the picture? Yeah, there we go. Okay, and uh, I will just jump. And this is us printing, and you can see the Mark and Kevin over there, and we were printing the wall. And uh, this wall was two meters long and 1.5 meters high, and it was printed in 35 minutes. In broad daylight with no tent or covering? <laughs> Nothing. We were just in the middle of a big square. They got back, they were so burned. <laughs> yeah, so every, everyone came back with a, with, a, with a very good tan or a burn. In Kevin's case, he got really cooked. But uh, we, we have done it. And, and this is how it looked like. And this was printed, the guys came out of quarantine on a Saturday. This was printed on a Friday. So why, uh, we, we, we met on Saturday, we looked at each other, we, we had the barbecue and, and beer, and then the next day we didn't, I think you went hiking? They took you hiking? I think yeah. for a hike. And then, uh, First day, Monday training, Tuesday, Wednesday, we printed our first bench for Oakland Council. Thursday, we did the Hamilton Council demonstration. Friday, we printed this. This is how quick we could be trained and operating the system. Uh, the tiles on the floor are more red or Kevin's legs are more red? Uh, we don't really know. This is a mystery. No, the, 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 yeah, it's a big big a big square there in front of the in the middle of the town and it's part of the uh, uh, what's it called uh, the it's next to it's next to the theater in, in Auckland so it's a big space and also next to Auckland Council who now are one of our customers uh, I'm just trying to see Although there was COVID like around the world, uh, there you don't have had any measurements. So there were like 100, 200, 100, 150 people um, invited and being there watching print. Um, you don't see them because they're right behind the camera. Um, because some movies made some movies about it. But as a result, a lot this of see, oh, it is possible. And then that's really uh, important. Uh, see it for real, not on a, uh, on a YouTube link or whatever. Um, and basically, sure. from um, this construction background over there, so they can get in contact, and as a result, it gets a good traction uh, nowadays. 
Yeah, so this is, this is the first print, which was the day before. This was done in Hamilton, in the middle of a square. Again, no cover, nothing. You can see a lot of people standing there watching us. And, and, we're, and we printed this module there. It's 2.8 meters high nice. and um, 1.2 meters wide. It was printing, printed in an hour. And again, you can see Kevin there in the corner. Um, and uh, and now it is, uh, uh, and that's the back of it, and that's our robot there. Uh, and this is, you can see the robot is clean, brand spanking new, did not get uh, any concrete splashing on it yet, uh, because uh, we just started. And this is the day before when we printed the, the other seat that sat in front of it, and. Uh, and this is the big module on, in Hamilton, in the middle of Hamilton. And this is the other one. I have some pictures of them when they're completed. And every time I close the window, it kicks me out. But uh, also I think this is a nice thing because um, what, uh, what Faye is focusing on, like yesterday we had a meeting with our partner in uh, Curacao. Uh, they are saying, yeah, we can print walls that you can see there. And they're focusing on printing walls of buildings. But we can also use the machine easily for printing street furniture, benches, um, artificial reef, etc., etc. So as a result, we can fill up the equipment. Um, and the nice thing is, we can share what they can share things with us. We can share them with our partner in Curacao. We can share things with partners in Morocco. They're sharing things. So as a result, you're creating this community, and then the effort of every single partner is getting less. Um, this is the same wall after we printed it recently. And you'll see how it changes, uh, how much projection we're getting out of it comparing to the previous one. This is when we're, we're, we're getting comfortable with, with it and we're getting uh, more experience with the material. I'm sorry, it's a little bit jittery, but uh, it's got sped up. From, uh, from, uh, from phone footage. And you can see right now, if you compare this to what we have done in, in, uh, in, uh, in Oakland, this is a lot more projected. Yeah, that's an identical 3D model? Yeah, it's identical, but uh, we, we pushed the limits a little bit more because uh, if you imagine that you've got a new, uh, you're doing a public demonstration um, in, in the middle of Oakland to, to the, for the Oakland Council, who is the biggest council in the country, and you, you don't want to really push it because uh, it, it, you're, you're, you're in public. So you, we were a little bit conservative on how much projection we did. Plus we are only had it for a week. So, you know, we, we only play, we only use the robot for a week. So we cannot really, you know, like try, try to be world, not world beaters when you only had something for a week. Yeah, it's a classic problem that you test something a hundred times in the lab it works every time and then you take it into public to show people and then it doesn't work all of a sudden exactly it happened uh, it happened to the te tesla yeah, demonstration it happened to us and if it happened to them it could happen to anyone exactly so the whole the whole thing is that we're trying to make it uh, um how can i say um yeah, we were, we were trying to make it uh, unique. And there's recently a project that we actually walked away from it. 
it's not because we are arrogant or anything, but because what happened is that we had around uh, 80 linear meter, which will be around uh, uh, 240 foot of, of wall. Um, and it's a retaining wall for landscaping. And they just wanted to plaster everything. They wanted to plaster the front. They wanted to. Uh, they wanted us to cut the corners because they didn't want it to have any rounded corners. They wanted effectively to strip 3D printing uh, and and dumb it down to so, um, something else. So we ended up telling them, "You're getting a, a race car, and you're using it for grocery shopping." So. So I, I told them, uh, you want to have a masonry or, or cinder block look and finish. Use cinder block. Don't use 3D printing to try and make it look like cinder block. Um, and we ended up uh, walking away from the project because we didn't believe that this will showcase uh, the technology or the benefits from the technology. We will be way faster. We will have done everything in two days. And it would have taken us one day to install it. Uh, but uh, we had to walk away from it because it's not really showing the technology; it's dumbing it down, and um, and we don't we don't want to be uh, dumbing down the technology. We want to show the advantages and the benefits from it. Um, so um, that what we think is the best thing is that to do the least amount of post printing work as possible to it. Um, and this is where you get the maximum efficiency from. I think it's an old school way of thought to like hide the construction methods and have like fake wood vinyl paneling or a drop ceiling and all these other methods of like disguising the true nature of the building. Most of the forward thinking architects and I think the way architecture as a whole is moving is showing the construction technique in the building, leaving the raw ceiling exposed, leaving concrete exposed, even leaving some steel exposed because people appreciate being able to see how the building was constructed, like timber frame, uh, even cinder blocks sometimes, brick. These things are now being left exposed. And I think 3D printing has phenomenal contributions to make to that because it can be created in any form you want to design, whether it be a basket weaved pattern, like you mentioned, or the diamond pattern. Um, most of the patterns that are possible certainly haven't even been experimented with yet. So I think people in the future will be much more willing uh, to accept the design it is rather than just wanting to plaster over it and hide the nature. Yeah, it, you're, 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 you're that right. Because also when I do a presentations and, and, and talk to architect, architects about it, most of the people that want it to look flat and smooth and uh, is, uh, are the senior guys in the firms. Um, Generally speaking, the square, clean uh, look is driven by uh, an old, um, old, older approach, and not trying to make it dynamic and organic to blend with the environment around it. It's more of an imposing kind of architecture that this is us. This is where we start, and this is where we finish. But if you look generally about all of the new designs that are coming around the world, not just for 3D printing, but um, even stadiums designs for, for the World Cup next year in, in Qatar, all of them are a lot more organic, are a lot more dynamic buildings. You look at it and you feel the lines work together. They're not butting into each other. They are complementing each other. 
And this is the, when 3D printing really helps us. Uh, a lot of the reason why it was a square shape buildings, and especially when you look in industrial buildings, even in New York, if you look at the Twin Towers previously, they look, the only thing that made them impressive is that they were tall. If these buildings were 10 or 20 stories, they would be one of the ugliest buildings on the planet. But what made them impressive is that they were tall. Compare that to Burj Khalifa that was built in Dubai, and you compare the designs of them. Right now it's the tallest building in the world, and you see how organic and how, how, how dynamics looks, not a box that stretched for hundreds of meters above ground. And you look at the new uh, towers that's being built around the world, or resorts or anything like that, that they are trying to integrate with the environment around it rather than being imposing. And, um, and the main reason why they were doing squares is because it was easier to build. 20 to 30 years, the capabilities of design and structural engineering, they increase as a result of using uh, software tools like uh, Revit, um, like Tecla, etc. As a result, designers, uh, whether it are architects or engineers, they could uh, create more complicated or more organic designs. However, the construction methodology, they were still the same. So now we're printing, yeah. now that's coping up, and they can even actually yeah. push each other's boundaries, um, which actually yeah, are now just opening up all the capabilities that we have not been capable to build like in the last 40 or 50 years. And of course, besides that, you've got those unique buildings like the Burj Khalifa, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, uh, social housing uh, probably will be like straightforward, quickly being built, and that is actually the majority of all the people globally uh, are going yeah. to and with that, actually, I'm going to leave this meeting because I need to go to my next meeting. Um, I will talk to you within one hour or so. Okay, no problem. Just, uh, just send me, send me a message, and we'll wait. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. So, designs that you've shared are mostly a lot of furniture, some walls. Um, it sounds though like you have ambitions of constructing some buildings. Yeah, we are, and uh, and we are working on a couple of houses that we um, that we're designing, uh, not designing, but involved in, and uh, and we have um, some walls that uh, that are quite unique uh, in design, and and uh, and this one of them, for example. So this one here, Sibi had made that design initially, but we tweaked it. Uh, and this wall is two meters by two meters, and it was printed in uh, um, uh, 38 minutes. Nice. So two meters, which will be around uh, uh, maybe six and a half foot or almost seven foot. Yeah. By seven foot in 38 minutes. So there's a couple of houses that we're actually working on now, and. Uh, and they will be built towards the end of the year, but none of them are part of the maybe world first thing. And, and the, because houses are obviously have been done. And, and it is, uh, it's in the pipeline, it's taking a little bit longer. We have been working with group uh, house companies that are developing their own range for 3D printing houses, so optimizing the designs that they have for that. Uh, we have a lot of interest from the social housing perspective, but uh, 
the governments work in a very different rate to um, to um, to private sector. So private sector obviously is uh, is getting on board quite early, but with um, councils are really excited about excited about using it for street furniture and landscaping because. Uh, it's very durable construction method and gives them a lot more freedom in design. Like Barry mentioned earlier, there were a lot of designs that could be done that couldn't be doing them with the traditional method, methods of construction and also method, methods of designs and, and structural analysis that right now is becoming very, very common. So for the houses you plan on building, will you print the elements for the house in your facility or will you bring the printer on site well um we didn't decide on that yet we we, we have both options we can do it uh, off-site and take it on site or we can take the robot on site it really depends um, on the access that we'll have to site at that time and what stage the project will be in and um, it, it is uh, it's a little bit tricky because the, it's uh, the house is on an island so it's not, uh, it's not in the, it's, New Zealand's an island, this one is an island of New Zealand. So uh, it, it's a small island and, uh, and, this, and the land is quite steep. Um, so the house will be cantilevering over, the, over it. So it's gonna be a little bit tricky to, um, to have access, uh, but uh, we will, we're doing everything we can because the client wants a printer on site and to showcase the technology and it will be good footage if it's on site uh, for our marketing uh, material. But generally speaking, with, we will try to do what's the best for the project and what's the best for the client. If it's the best for the project to be on site, to print on site, we have the ability to do that. And uh, we have done several public demonstrations that will arrive in the morning, we print, and then by the end of the day, we take the robot back. So it's not difficult to do that. Um, or we or we can have a printing area or a printing station on site that we're printing everything there and then we get position in the final position or we can print in the final position. So having a mobile system gives you all of the options. Um, and one of the things that we have is that we have limitation on the length of the wall elements that we can print in one, one time. And this limitation is imposed on us by the building standard. So we cannot print uh, the walls of a house continuously without having construction breaks or construction joints in them. So this limits a little bit our options when it comes to uh, what type of systems we can use in New Zealand because if you must have a construction joint every six meters, which will be around uh, um, maybe 60. Uh, sorry, eight, eight, 18 feet. Uh, so if you have every 18 feet, you must have a construction joint. And um, there's no point trying to print um, 30 feet. You know, it, uh, it, um, you'll go around and start cutting the wall again. So, um, because this is the building standard and a lot of it comes back from the, how active, how seismically active New Zealand is. Um, we, they call it the New Zealand name and nickname is the Shaky Isles, which short for Shaky Islands. And it's the same like Japan, but um, which makes it, makes a seismic clients quite high. The, the closest thing you can have to it in the United States is San Francisco area and LA. 
and maybe California. Um, but uh, here we had a big earthquake in Christchurch uh, maybe 10 years ago now, and uh, or maybe more, and it was really devastating to, for Christchurch town, which is the second biggest city in New Zealand. The CBD was completely destroyed and they had a lot of fatalities and this instigated a review in all of the building standards and we changed a lot. So quickly weighing some of the pros and cons of on-site versus off-site, it seems to me like it would be easier for you to ship in the raw material to the island rather than ship in the printed elements because if they're on a boat or something that's shaped, rocking, uh, you have the risk of the printed element getting damaged or cracking or like falling over or something. Whereas the yes. concrete sacks could just, it doesn't matter how much you put them through. Yeah, it, it, you're, 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 you're spot on. And that, that, the advantage of printing offsite in general is that <clears throat> you're working in a control environment. You're working, you have your power just there, you have your water there, you don't have to worry about whether you are in control of, of the elements around you. And you can work 24-7 because you have lighting. When you print on site, um, you need to take the robot, you need to take the raw materials, you need to have utility over there, whether it's water, power, or waste, and waste, obviously, because you have some wastage. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so at the end of the day, you have to take something to site, whether it's a finished product, and you take the risk of logistics of it, or you are taking the machinery and the raw material there. And at that time, you have to deal with the site conditions and you have to deal with uh, the utilities or services that you'll need over there. So, um, unless we are printing with dirt like WASP did previously mm. uh, and having the building standard accepted, uh, we will have to take something to site. Um, so, the biggest thing is uh, every project is unique. And the best thing that we can have as preparation wise is uh, to have the flexibility to do it, to do it in any way. And uh, a lot of the times um, people um, get fixated on the system more than the client's need and what they're trying to help uh, or trying to achieve. And they try to pin one system against the other. But well, the way I look at it is that you have, every system has its own advantages. Um, and in certain situations, one system might be way better than another system. And so other situations, the other system will be better than the other system. Particularly robotic arms and gantries, they always have this debate, which system is better. But you think about it, you compare, the closest thing I think about is, gant is gantry cranes and mobile cranes. Gantry cranes are very good in certain situations that do stuff that mobile cranes cannot do. Mobile cranes on the other side can do stuff that gantry cranes cannot do. So it's not which one is the better, it's just both of them are different and, and they're better in, in their own areas. If you so, need rakes in the wall anyway in New Zealand, then it seems like a no-brainer to me that you would use a robotic arm versus a gantry system because the only benefit really of the gantry system is the monolithic structure. If you can't print yeah. a monolithic structure anyway, then what do you exactly. need volume for? Yeah, and, and, and if you look also at, at having a robotic arm on, on a track that can print longer elements, we are also limited, uh, like, um, if I have a track, it will be a very short track because I can, I can only print six meters. And the robot's reach and either end also 
reduces the amount of track that you need. So it will be a track that maybe runs for two meters or three meters because the robot breaches itself. It's like we printed a wall element last week, and it was six meters long without a track. So if I put the track, it will be like this long. <laughs> Just, it will be very short. And so that you, it, it, and, and again, um, I do, I do, I'm not trying to say there's one system that's completely better than the other because I don't think, honestly, there is. If you want to be flexible and print on multiple sites a day or every other day, the gantry system setup will not help. In the same time, if you want to have a monolithic look, gantry systems are better than mobile systems because you can do that. You have other things that to take into consideration about material shrinkage and curing and other things that you have to take into account. On the flip side with robotic systems is that they're so fast, the material that you need to use has to be very quick setting. And you have to know how to use it very, very well. So it's less forgiving with, with speed. You have less error tolerance. With gantry, you have longer elements and more tolerance and workability time. So as you can see, they're, they're different, but they're doing the same job to a certain extent. And, and you will notice that a lot, of, a lot of them have also very different look and feel. You see gantry systems most likely have thicker, higher layers. Mobile systems have finer, lower layers that are more, and more homogeneous with each other because of the, of the um, uh, how can I say, the, the short tool path that you have and the short time you have between layers. So it helps with adhesion. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time when you look at big gantry prints, you'll see that the, the, the layers below are completely cured if you compare it to the top ones. With, with, print, with, uh, with prints, most of the time uh, with robotics, the bottom layers are still not 100% cured when you're, when you're at the final layers. It gives you more of a consistent uh, uh, structure from bottom to top. You don't have any cool joints that happens from there. I haven't seen any gantry systems printing full height walls all at once. They usually print a portion and then wait and then print the next portion. You mentioned yeah, because the, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you mentioned printing with mud or Adobe, uh, like Wasp. Is that something yeah. you're? Uh, not yet, because. Uh, and the New Zealand Planning Center will not recognize that unless we're doing plant planters or something like this and you're doing it with very slow speed and you'll bake it after this, it's not gonna it's not gonna be recognized. And this one of the challenges that the industry generally have is that even try to talk about geopolymers or, or putting um, waste concrete in the concrete structures or, or I always get asked about hempcrete, can you print with hempcrete and all this stuff. It's just the material, unfortunately, needs to prove its durability and longevity and the low maintenance work with the building standards to look at. And all of these materials are still in research phase. So um, I don't think there's one factory that produces hempcrete for this all the time because what they do is that they get normal concrete and they put hemp fibers in it and off you go. This will not work with any of the pumping systems that for 3D printing and also the look of it will not be acceptable because you will have hemp fibers coming out of the wall. And we're talking about organic designs, but this will be a live design. The, the wall will be, will be <laughs> you will have weeds growing out of it. 
uh, but the, uh, the biggest the the biggest thing is how regulation looks at new technology and you touched on it uh, and also speaking even the united states with this fragmented system that they have or the fragmented beginning of a system that you have is way ahead than a lot of countries around the world we we don't have anything anywhere near recognizing 3d printing as a construction method and how to measure its performance when I talk to structural engineers in New Zealand, one of the biggest challenges that we, we have is that the only thing that concrete can work on is compression. And this is very true when you have a solid piece of concrete with no reinforcement in it. But when you start to build, do honeycomb structures and you start to, to, to transfer loads, the concrete in one direction is working as compression and, and the other way it's complementing itself, they cannot get their head around it because also the software is that they use cannot calculate concrete in this way. So it makes it, even if they want to, they cannot prove that it works. And so it will take time. And there's a lot of uh, companies that recognizes that this is, uh, is a gap in the market that they can fill and they starting to develop their own um, uh, 3D printing concrete analysis software. So, uh, so you can show to structural engineers that, okay, with this infill pattern, we can achieve so much more or, or we need to infill spacing to be so much to allow us to do that. This ultimately will reduce the amount of concrete we'll, that we'll be using and make the buildings a lot more sustainable. And um, we'll put a little bit, um, um, we'll take the focus away from construction industry being an unsustainable practice or an un, unsustainable um, um, process because we're using our material that we have way more efficiently and doing it purposefully. We are putting concrete there because we really need the concrete there. And a lot of the times what happens is that you're, you're filling the walls and as a result of filling the walls, the walls become heavier. So you need more reinforcement. And then the more reinforcement you put, and the, the more thicker the wall gets, and uh, and the, and you end up chasing your tail a little bit um, until you find the optimum design, the wall to, to concrete to uh, reinforcement ratio. And uh, and right now we're even telling them you can use less ratios than we have. So in building standard in New Zealand, there are specific ratios of reinforcement minimum reinforcement in the concrete. But what we're trying to tell them, no, you can do less if you do a honeycomb uh, pattern or an infill pattern because the, you're getting the concrete to work very differently than it was before. Which is really only possible with 3D printing. I think you have a good yeah. chance of having the first printed building in an earthquake zone. I don't think that's been done before. I, I don't know because uh, if you think about the, the guys uh, like mighty buildings in the States, they are in California. I don't think I've done that. Building. Sorry? I wouldn't count Mighty Buildings as being a 3D printed building. They don't use a very small portion of their building is printed. I understand, but what I'm saying is that everyone can lay a claim left, right, and center about, uh, about that. If somebody builds something uh, um, in, 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 actually, India is, a, is considered a seismic zone, and they have printed something in India. I'm not trying to say we're, we're not we're not we're not we're not trying to be innovative or or or, or um, trailblazers, but 
I'm very cautious about saying the first or the only or I that think because talk about it that way, it's less important to be the first and more important to be the one hundredth or the one thousandth and actually implement it at a large exactly, exactly, exactly. I'm 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 with you. And one of the things that I really I really liked is that when you did the video about debunking the four thousand dollar house or the five thousand dollar house, it's just it's mind boggling how 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 things get stretched or the media coverage of how sustainable it is. And it's actually it's doing the whole industry a disservice because what this does is that it freaks the existing market from us and from the new technology and you're creating enemies because you're, you're thinking, oh, they can build it cheaper than us. We no way we can do that. It costs us $4,000 just to wake up in the morning and to send our crew to site. Um, and I think, um, a 3D printing industry or a 3D printing community overall, we are falling victim of purposely or unpurposely of exaggeration and putting a level of expectation, whether it's time or cost um, or, or speed uh, of building that is not realistic and it's actually stretching the reality. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's it's an interesting duality though because you mentioned you saw a video about 3d printed construction i would it was probably one of those videos that said $4,000 house or $10,000 house printed wasn't it it was a 48 dollar a 48 hour study that was printed in russia and, and, uh, and, yeah, and, and then you looked at it you have to be kind of thankful for that false marketing because that video got so popular because of the claims and that got you interested the same with me that was yeah the introduction i had to the industry and we were just some of the few people who didn't give up after we realized it wasn't a, a reality yeah because because you can see through this fog and also it's uh, and and one of the things that I really liked about working about Sibia, and I don't want uh, to look like I'm just promoting them just because they're my partner, is that they don't leave you alone. If there's a problem, they will do everything they can to help you. They don't just sell you the printer and tell you, okay, you go and find your own material, or you sell you the printer and run away from it. Or um, and and Barry and his team, they really care, and you do. And, and you work with them and you know them personally. Like when they moved to New, when they were in New Zealand, and they stayed with us in our house and my father-in-law's house because they were already locked up in a hotel for two weeks. So it, there was no point to put them in another hotel. So um, it, having a sense of normality was, was important. And, and I don't think um, you can build such a relationship uh, with, other, other company owners, uh, even though they might be accessible by email or phone, but this level of attention and, and support, I don't think you can have from, you can easily have. Um, the, the thing is that we feel that's really a partnership, like we're in this together. Their success is my success, my success is their success. And, um, and a lot of times I feel that the 3D printing community overall needs to collaborate more and we'll be a lot more stronger, we'll be a lot more efficient in our R&D, especially because there's a lot of startups that are doing a lot of very cool stuff. And, and we need to talk to each other and collaborate with each other because there might be something that's developed by a company 
that another company that's just about to start developing on their own. And we can speed up the whole evolution of the industry if we just collaborate together and work together rather than saying this is better than this or oh, we have done this, our system is better than yours, our material is better than yours, or our software is better than yours, our robots is better than yours. So and instead of trying to push each other and say who is who is better or who is the best, maybe it's better just to talk to each other and find out how can we work and speed up our progress overall. Yeah, especially in these early stages when it's not like really tough uh, competitively, like you're the only company 3D printing concrete or mortar in all of New Zealand. And so you can share with other companies in India or in America, South America, Europe, and not yeah, uh, about it. Yeah, and also there's enough work for everyone. There's enough interest about the technology that every single company that's doing 3D printing right now uh, can have work for the next five years without even having to tender against anyone. Like this is how much work is there out there to get. The only challenge we have is that we need, we need to win the hearts and minds of the, of the, of the average Joe that to understand that this is actually a solution to the problems that they're having. Uh, and it doesn't help if we are building an unrealistic uh, expectation levels when it comes to speed and cost. And also, it doesn't help if we are fighting against each other or arguing about, with each other, who's better, who's best, and all of this stuff. And we'll be a lot leaner and meaner industry if we just work together. Yeah, I agree. So when you were going through the purchasing process, were there any other companies that you considered? Yeah, there were a couple of companies. I don't know if I should <laughs> say their name or not, but they were, they're some of the biggest players in the market. And I talked to them and, um, and ultimately I, I ended up um, working with, uh, with Civi. And so, some of them are, are predominantly, they might be have sold more printers or similar size or similar quantity of printers to Civi. I, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit unknown. Uh, because of all of the non-disclosure agreements that people sign and um, and uh, what you don't know what's on the pipeline. It's a little bit, uh, um, it, I, I, I honestly, when I started to research it, I started to feel that this is, looks like a fog of information. You have to go through a lot of, you know, deep dive research to actually find who has printers for sale and who is actually worth working with. Because if you look at the amount of companies that have printers for sale, I think you can count them in one hand. There's a lot of companies that have printers, but they are not for sale. Uh, and a lot of them can sell you a printer, but they will not be able to help you with the material. So it is a little bit tricky. Yeah, certainly. You, you have traveled around the world and you have seen a lot of printers in action. Uh, can I ask you a couple of questions about what you have noticed? You don't have to be specific, but what have you noticed about the industry overall? What the biggest stakes? You hit the nail on the head when it's like, it's not about who's better. It's about the situational uh, circumstances. And so it depends regionally where someone wants to print. Is it an earthquake zone? 
Are they limited by things like uh, element length? Um, what material do they want to print with? What are the priorities, whether it be uh, time savings or like how strong does the material have to be, insulatory properties? Um, all of these questions can change the scales of whether one company may be preferable to a specific region or project than another company. And so it's, uh, and they're also all developing. So all the companies I'm talking to are, whether they're selling their printer or they're just working on a printer for themselves, they're still on a learning curve where they're adapting their printer and like making improvements. And so they're not, um, they're not unsatisfied with where the technology is today, but just because the iPhone has like great specs or great camera, whatever, next year they're still gonna come out with a new iPhone. And then the year after that, they'll come out yeah. with another iPhone. And it like- yeah. it's like, it's like- It's like making the first iPhone and then stopping. Yeah. Okay, we made the first iPhone, we don't need to do anything more. It just stops there. And I, I tell people that the, the printers that we have right now are the equivalent to the first laptops. So this is the first generation of, of these machines. And uh, no matter uh, what we think, the next generation will be, will be better, and the next one will be better, and the next one will be better. But I'm, what I'm saying is that it seems that there are some, some companies are developing newer um, production lines or newer uh, um, uh, models that already been done with, by other companies and, and they're developing it from scratch. So why develop it from scratch when somebody's over there that you can go and talk to them and find out what it is and collaborate with them and you can start producing your system in collaboration with these guys. It will save you a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a lot of headaches and because you can take their learnings and, and work with it. But what's happening is that people are developing stuff because the other company has it. So we have to develop what they have. So we're not missing out. And, and we're developing it completely from scratch uh, instead of talking to them. And we can work together and speed up. So if we collaborate, then the next generation will be better and it will way better and it will be a lot closer to, to, uh, to become available on the market comparing to waiting for everyone to do everything on their own. Um, and, uh, and I think it's part of it, it's a, it's a human, human nature. Um, I, I would like to see 3D printing work the same way like Android did. Like uh, they work with everyone, they allow, they allow everyone to develop their own interface on it. They work with, they work with the, the companies work with, uh, with Google to develop it, uh, their own um, systems, uh, but we are not there. We, we need to be there. We need to work together because uh, a lot of the companies are, uh, as you said, startups, they're still evolving and developing. And if you can take the lessons from someone else, instead of you wasting time and resources to do it, why not? It's especially difficult for the companies that have received large uh, investment from like institutional investors because they have a standard for their uh, companies and their like information and they really are particular about not sharing the information that they're in 
investment has yielded. Yeah, I understand, and uh, but I'm not saying. But also, all of this time, the, there is always areas of collaboration. And if you turn around and you tell the investor, okay, we're going to collaborate with these guys to in, increase our our range uh, of, of of supply, instead of us spending. Uh, whatever the amount is and spending a couple, uh, wasting a couple of years, we can work with these guys and have it available on the market next month. You think the investor will come to no, I don't want, I want you to limit your, your product range. I, I don't want you to reach this market now. I want you to wait for two years. So you only one that has the IP, but, but you look at that and you think the automotive industry again, because they seem to be a lot more efficient. All of the big manufacturing, working together to develop a single charging system that will work on all of their vehicles. You don't think any of these companies could have done it on their own with the billions, not millions, billions of dollars that they have for, uh, for R&D? Have you identified any other companies that are more open to collaboration? in this space? Uh, I, I, have, I haven't talked to any other company, to be honest with you, but I know there's a lot more collaboration happening um, between the material suppliers and the companies because the material suppliers are working with different companies but, and, they're, and they're working with them because their motto is, I'm not gonna be, have exclusive rights with anyone because they want to sell to the whole market. We need to implement something similar to that to, to us, I'm not saying everyone needs to be collaborate with everyone, but I'm saying is that if you don't knock on the door of other companies to try and work with them, you will never, you will never work with. Them. I'm saying it could be collaboration between two or three companies that are working on a certain project or working on a certain product or a certain model, rather than each one of them, because right now every one of them, every every single company is working in a silo, look hard covering their, uh, their IP, not letting anyone do it, signing very strict agreements with their partners around the world or their, or their customers to make sure that this IP does not go out outside. So each one is just have a little thing and they're trying to protect it. But also not a lot of the companies have massive investments and funded into them to just make them lock the IP. And so I know CIVI is privately owned, I know some of the other companies are privately owned. I know TAM is privately owned. I know uh, Picas is privately owned. I know uh, Petram is privately owned. There, there's a lot of companies. Copod is privately owned, as far as I know. And um, um, so all of these private companies that then get venture capital funds or VC funding can work together. And there's nothing stopping them. It's just the own. And the, the good thing is that the owners of these businesses or the founders of these businesses are still running the businesses. So you can get traction and decision making very quickly because if you can reach the founder, they're still or they're still running the business. You can they can talk to each other. You know, like you have this, we have this. You want to have a look at that, and we have a look at this, and that's it. You know? Yeah, you need a big group chat. Yeah, we need, we need a big group chat, but uh, I don't know if uh, uh, the first thing about before the big group chat is that we need to stop uh, poo-pooing each other and saying my my, um, my cake is better than your cake. And uh, we need uh, to celebrate each other's success because everything 
if there's a house that's built in Germany or a house that's built in the States or a house that's built in Dubai or a house built in Japan, whatever it is, it helps the industry overall. It helps us as a community, it builds awareness about it because it gets media coverage. And then people start to Google and search 3D printing uh, houses and then you will come up as a business because you are there. And because there isn't a lot of us, you will get the business because somebody else built something somewhere else. Yeah, and I think that's the big incentive for people to be early movers in the space. And even though you know the technology is under development, future models will come out. But if you're the company who is early to the game and is developing your employees' experience with the modeling and the printing, uh, some of those things are going to carry on to the next iteration of the technology. And so you'll have a lead and an advantage in the market. And also the, the marketing value and the global interest in these projects it's not going to be a novelty or a new thing forever. So the companies who join in five years, in 10 years, they're not going to be headlines on the news the same way the companies joining today are. Yeah, so when we did, and, and, and you're dead right, because when we did the, the public demonstration in Hamilton, uh, Hamilton Council sent a, a, a press release and it was covered in the local newspaper, but then it got covered globally. And I found the article that, that, was, that was made in New Zealand translated to Polish, translated to, to Dutch. And I was looking at it. I never thought that I would be in a website in Poland before. It was never, never my radar. It's not that I don't want to, but I never thought about it. Yeah. So uh, this, is, uh, well, this is the kind of coverage that everyone benefits from. So if we're gaining coverage or gaining uh, uh, leads or getting, you know, being building awareness about the technology. It's better than we actually work together because everyone's success helps other people. Um, and um, a lot of uh, where some of the material suppliers that we that we talk to, um, they tell us they, they get approached by companies that are startups uh, that didn't have a role, that don't have anything, and they want to dictate to them that uh, I want to have exclusivity with you, and I'm the only one that will sell material to. And they look at them and say, "What? Who are you? Uh, like, uh, uh, you don't have anything to dictate any of these terms." And and also the other thing is, um, the only way for us to make it mainstream and make it competitive commercially and pricing and drop the price down is we need to have scale. We need to have scale in ordering robots. We need to have scale of manufacturing robots. We need to have scale of logistics. We need to have scale in getting the raw material, whatever material that we're using. And the only way to get scale is to spread it as fast as possible and as much as possible. And to gain distraction, we cannot really reinvent the wheel every time someone's trying to do some, add something new to their production line. Yeah, I'm in kind of a unique position where I'm in touch with a lot of these companies and not in a competitive yeah. way at all. So none of them see me as a competitor. Um, I feel like there should be some way that I could help facilitate that uh, collaboration and interaction. But I don't know, where yeah. do you to start with that? Well, I think the first thing to start is, uh, is to approach them individually because you have you interviewed pretty much every single CEO that of a company that's worth knowing about so far. Uh, and you either, or even made a video about it. So the biggest, the biggest thing is to, to, to float the idea first with them and see how they're gonna react and see if they're, they're open to it or not. 
and then we can have um, like the um, uh, what's called worldwide conference, like the one that Winson have done. Yeah. <laughs> and and the what I'm saying is that they have a big uh, have a big meeting somewhere because we still cannot travel, uh, and everyone's too busy to travel just for a specific meet, a conference that will take one or two hours. That could be done uh, through a Zoom meeting or something. So and talk to the people, see what, see, talk to your contacts, see what they think, if it's worth it or not. And then after that, the agenda needs to be developed to talk about it. And, and generally, even before the agenda, it just needs to be a, a theme of what we're trying to do, yeah, or the spirit, then the meeting spirit or the meeting um, uh, vibe, let's say. Uh, it's not about uh, people bragging about who they're working with or what projects that they have done or what they have in the pipeline or what it's just about knowing each other and helping each other out and right. supporting each other. Need is for the collaboration. Like, do you, would it be most valuable for companies to share information about the 3D modeling they're doing, the softwares, the splicers, um, the material? I, I, you can you can look at all of the components of what goes inside a 3D printer or a 3D printed um, house or, or a product and then you have the, the raw material, you have the pumping system, you have the, the robot itself, you have the software that you use for controlling the robot and the software that you use in the designing or splicing. You have all of these things, all of these aspects, each company that printed a house, they have them. But they have done it in one way. I'm not saying that's the right way or the wrong way. It's one way. It yeah. worked. It worked for them. What I'm trying to say is that if a company on the side that see that they need improvement in one of these areas and they see something they like that another company have done, to talk to this company and say, can, can we work together on this? It's tricky because they all have different things that are important to them. Like a lot of them are very protective of their mixing system and they don't really want me to film too much of the mixing system. Um, Seabay is totally open to me filming parts of their mixing system and explaining the different aspects and me putting that on the internet. Whereas Seabay does not really share so much detail about their material ingredients, whereas other companies might be willing to share material ingredients, but they don't want to share the, the mixing thing. So it's tricky to find. I understand, but, but I, and, and I totally get where everyone's coming from. I'm just saying is that hypothetically, you have a company that's developing a new type of pro, a new type of robot that already a company has it. Yeah. Yeah. It's there. Talk to each other. Instead of you developing it completely from scratch, let's say a company that produces gantry systems or a company that produces robots, these guys want to produce gantry systems, these guys want to produce robotic arm. Talk. You have yeah. a lot of experience in this area, you have a lot of experience in this area. Maybe the 3D models are a good place to start because those are kind of like a dime a dozen easier for companies to make a model and then have a system where it demonstrates like for this printer, the model is printed in this time with these methods. Yeah, you're, you're right. Maybe, maybe, maybe modeling and software because at the end of the day, even companies are saying they're technology companies, but at the end of the day, they are construction companies. That, you know, they develop the software for the, for the 3D printer. They don't develop the software for the sake of the software. So you can start with the modeling, and it's a very valid point. 
uh, or, or and also maybe slicing software uh, or robot the, because the slicing yeah, no matter what system you do if you, you have a couple of parameters that you change and you can be slicing the whole house or you're slicing uh, a planter it's uh, it's the same yeah course. i think start small with one specific topic and then build from there and then once the companies see uh how nice it is to work with each other they'll build more trust and be willing to share more yeah exactly and this is and this is and 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 this i just thinking about it now after speaking out loudly it is it might be the best option because then you gain uh, you, you know the people you gain perception uh, about what they are and what kind of people they are and you build a working relationship and trust between each other and uh, this could be the beginning of uh, of uh, more collaboration in other areas that are more um, specific and because um, frankly speaking the majority of the big material suppliers they don't really uh, care about who they're working with so they will work with anyone uh, yeah if i want to buy material tomorrow from any of the big guys they will sell it they don't care mm -hmm. just uh, uh, they will not sign an exclusivity agreement with anyone and even though uh, some of them actually own shares in other companies like Lafarge Holson sells to Copod, sells to a lot of other companies they 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 just did a fact and they did a house in Malawi with a Copod robot and they own shares in X3 in France so this is how exclusive they are they, they're they're selling products to their subsidiaries competition so uh, so yeah, so generally speaking, there's no uh, exclusivity in the pot, but they also they spend a lot of time and a lot of energy developing their own material. So, uh, so you might be right. It's just baby steps. Build the relationship, build trust, and if you have this global um, collaboration uh, meeting once a year or once every six months. And people get to know each other more. They get familiar. They might be, in, they might people might invite each other to come and visit their facilities, and 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 this will also could be a, a beginning. As long as it's done on the high level, not push to construction managers or production managers or uh, product managers, because it end up happening that these guys have a, this much workload in front of them, and they are not the, the decision makers or uh, or they're scared of making a decision because it might be their own decision to collaborate with someone and then they ended up being in the doghouse for uh, uh, releasing IP that they shouldn't. Yeah, it needs to be easy too for the company so that they don't need to dedicate extra resources. Exactly. And the whole idea is to actually reduce the result and reduce the, uh, the load on the resources that we have because what it's becoming very um, what we're doing because it's not mainstream there's a lot of people that know it and you have a very steep learning curve to understand how the technology works because builders or construction engineers or structural engineers or architects they have no idea about robotics they have no idea uh, how how 3d printing works on the flip side robotic guys have no idea about construction so you're starting to have these hybrid people that know a little bit on the other side of the fence and it's very unique and there aren't that many of them around the world so and that's what i'm saying is that if they collaborate so this team have done something you have done something you can work together because if you're trying to repeat what this guy have done over there and you have very limited resources because again there aren't a lot of people and we're talking about startup businesses that they cannot hire 
hundreds of people and they have a big R&D departments, you, you need to do the most with the, with the resources that you have. So since uh, I guess we're kind of coming to towards the end of the podcast, is there, if somebody's interested in working with you, uh, working with Corox, how should they contact you and get in touch to do a project with you? So um, we, um, we have our, all of our contacts, our website and our social media uh, platforms. And, um, and they, my name and my contacts are available online on LinkedIn or to our website. They can call us and uh, we're, current, we're based in Hamilton in New Zealand, uh, which is an hour and a half south of Auckland and um, it's in central of the North Island, close to it's the middle half of North Island, let's say. And then we're servicing uh, the area around us because again, we're a startup, but we cannot afford to be everywhere. So we are not currently, we're not servicing the South Island of New Zealand, which has maybe around 20 to 25% of New Zealand population, mm-hmm. um, mainly just because um, of uh, logistics and, um, and only having one robot in the country. Um, we're looking to grow and cover more area, but uh, generally speaking, you can find us on um, any social media platform. We have a TikTok channel, we have a YouTube channel, we have uh, Instagram, we have um, Facebook page, we have a LinkedIn page and, uh, and our website. The only thing that we're not on, we, we, have, a, we have a handle as Twitter, mainly because uh, it's not really popular in New Zealand, so we're staying away from that time being. Yeah. And are, are there any positions you're hiring for if people want to work for Corox? Uh, currently, uh, no. Um, we, we use external, uh, uh, we outsource um, some of the stuff that we need help with. Um, and also Civi gives us a lot of support when we need to. Uh, the biggest uh, thing is the, the busier we'll get, hopefully we'll be able to order our second and third robot and then we will be looking for recruits. Uh, New Zealand immigration laws are quite difficult to get people from overseas. So predominantly we'll be looking locally um, to recruit, which uh, helps us a little bit that the system is quite um, user-friendly and doesn't really take a long time to learn it. So what's going to happen is that like the, these guys could, were trained in a month, we will be able to train someone else in a month. And hopefully by then the borders will be open so they can travel to the Netherlands and get the training Great. And you mentioned you're you're looking into buying now a second and third printer. Not immediately, but hopefully, uh, it all depends on, on the how the next six months will go and how much traction we get on the market, and how we can uh, move forward from there. Very nice. That's a good sign. So I'll make sure to link your website in the description of the video. Um, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. And uh, have a good day. Yeah, we'll be in touch.